nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking. My name is Lydia. But our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. So I know what can happen it's when the, the nuclear. This week, we again talk with everybody's favorite nuclear Mr. Wizard, Arne Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. Arne brings us up to date on what's been happening at Fukushima, especially what recent reports from TEPCO really mean when they issue statements on radiation in the water. Holes torn in the covering on Unit 1, and completion of Unit 4 fuel rod removal. Then Arnie shares a slam-dunk way to deprive the nuclear industry of its peak energy profits. You're going to love that one. Arnie is, as always, fascinating, in-depth, easy to listen to, and absolutely clear. He'll be coming up in just a few moments. We will also have a special report from Nuclear Hot Seat British correspondent Sean McGee on recent harassment of high-level nuclear scientists in the UK in conjunction with the case of British military veterans suing their government for health claims based on their exposure to uranium from bomb tests. It's a case that has distinct parallels with the USS Reagan sailors who are suing TEPCO and four other corporations for radiation health damages. Plus... We'll have our favorite feature, Numbnuts of the Week, the activist shout-out, the John Stewart Twitter campaign, and more nuclear information than a Republican-led U.S. Congress will ever mention. All this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 11th, 2014, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. The New York Times inadvertently revealed the front line in the nuclear industry's latest ploy to get us to not be afraid of nuclear when they reported that doctors now want a ban on thyroid cancer screenings because too many cases are showing up. Cancer specialists are freaked out that the most common cancer in South Korea is now thyroid cancer, with an incidence that has increased 15-fold in the last two decades. But these self-same cancer experts agree with each other that the reason for this situation in South Korea and elsewhere, meaning Japan, is not a real increase in the disease. Instead, they blame the messenger, the screening test. Dr. Otis W. Brawley, who is chief medical officer at the American Cancer Society, said, It's a warning to us in the U.S. that we need to be very careful in our advocacy of screening. In South Korea, there has been a call from doctors for cancer screenings to be banned. And in the U.S., thyroid experts are calling for restraint in diagnosing and treating tiny tumors. Right. That's like telling women we have to cut back on mammograms because early diagnosis of those tiny cysts and tumors are the reason behind rising rates of breast cancer. So let's not test you. Let's just wait till you develop really bad breast cancer and die of it. That's what they're saying to the children and others who have come up with compromised thyroids because of their exposure to nuclear radiation in the world. And shame on the New York Times for not only printing an article, but an op-ed that supports this position. Radiation is starting to show up off the west coast of North America. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans in Canada has been collecting water samples since June of 2011, and the 2013 results revealed the presence of cesium-134 along a line of sites approximately 1,500 kilometers or 930 miles to the west of Victoria, British Columbia. The February 2014 readings showed that cesium-137 was found at a level of two becquerels of cesium per cubic meter. Scientists from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution have detected radioactivity 100 miles due west of Eureka, California, on the coast approximately 100 miles south of Oregon. 
and a project based at Cal State Long Beach, Kelp Watch 2014, to measure radiation in the water, has found surprising amounts of radioactive 131 in the Pacific Ocean from the Palos Verdes Peninsula to Orange County in Southern California. Radioactive water has been continuously released from Fukushima Daiichi's nuclear disaster since March 11 of 2011. But at this time, no state or federal agency in the United States is testing Pacific waters for radiation. A Dr. Robert Metzger, Radiation Safety Engineering Incorporated, reported at the American Chemical Society's 2013 meeting that contaminated food imports into the United States from Japan were first observed in their laboratory on March 30th of 2011, 29 days after the disaster began, with several products exceeding the FDA's levels for intervention. Yet the FDA stated in May of 2011 that no field examinations have shown levels above background and no gamma ray emitting radionuclides of concern have been detected. So while top officials and agencies publicly downplayed the crisis, we had nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that sound awake. This has got to be the most cynical, double-dealing, lying political piece of numbnutsery that this program has ever encountered. The New York Department of Health and Department of Environmental Health Sciences Wadsworth Center reports that in August of 2012, they were asked to test food samples in preparation for the upcoming national political conventions to determine if any nuclear radiation was in the food, and if so, how much. This from a government that was saying, pay no attention to those three melting-down nuclear reactors behind the curtain. Pay no attention. There's no compromise at all to your food, to your air, to your water. Eh. And at the same time, those people who are considered most responsible for choosing who is supposed to be the next leader of the free world, meaning this country, weren't believing their own propaganda and were asking for tests. What got tested, according to New York State Department of Health's Wadsworth Center? Milk samples, water, lettuce, orange juice, shrimp, meat products. They tested for iodine-131, cesium-134 and 137, iodine-131, rhodium-103, ruthenium-106. I haven't even heard of some of these isotopes, but yet, but yet, I guess if you're responsible for picking the next nominee for President of the United States, you deserve to know that none of that is in your food. Well, here's the irony. They did find cesium in the food in nine out of 20 milk samples in Florida, which is where the Republicans were holding their convention. And here's where irony becomes my favorite supplement of all. Because the Republicans, in their put-it-in-quotes wisdom, listened to the nuclear experts who were saying, hey, don't worry about that. It's not a problem. It won't harm you. And they ate the stuff anyway. So I think it's time to start a new epidemiological study. We need to locate the names and email addresses of all those delegates and put them on a watch list. Because the cancer clock is ticking down and it has been since August of 2012. That's two years and three months. According to Dr. Helen Caldicott, leukemia and thyroid cancer can start showing up within three to five years of exposure. Hard tumors take longer, usually 12 to 15 years for them to first show up, and the risk continues for the rest of your life. So tick, 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 Republicans and Democrats, courtesy your own party's cynical toadyism to the great god nuclear that sought to check out and seemingly protect you when they put you at the same risk as the rest of us. At least now you can take them up on the discount tickets to the 2020 Tokyo Olympics because, let's face it, you've probably already been nuked from the inside out. And that's why the Republican and Democratic National Committees, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Over in the U.K., 
regarding the British nuclear test veterans case, papers reluctantly released by the UK government in the bomb test veterans legal case for compensation reveals what it has long denied, according to Professor Christopher Busby, that bomb fallout is rich in uranium and that most of its radioactivity is concentrated in the forgotten but highly active isotope U-235, explaining much of the substantial long-term damage to veterans' health. Here with a Nuclear Hot Seat exclusive report on this case is our UK correspondent, Sean McGee. This is Sean McGee reporting to you from Limerick City in Ireland on behalf of the Nuclear Hot Seat podcast. I was in conversation recently with Professor Chris Busby, and he reported to me that there has been some developments in the British Nuclear Test Veteran Court case in London for fair and just compensation for the victims. Over the past recent years, Dr Busby has been an expert witness for a number of the veterans. He has discovered documents that show a surprising effect of uranium causing multi-generational effects of damage to the DNA. There has been some issues with this case that seem to point to manipulation by the UK government, who seem to be trying to block the facts of genetic damage caused by uranium getting out. The latest information I've discovered during a recent conversation with Dr Busby is that the judge in charge of the case has just refused expert witnesses and will only take scientific evidence from the government's own expert witness. Even in the face of growing evidence reluctantly released by the UK government showing that there is indeed damage caused by uranium-234 fallout from the atomic bomb programme in past decades... This is underpinned by recent findings and admissions by the UK government that depleted uranium has caused similar genomic problems in Iraq veterans due to depleted uranium. Dr Busby was highly shocked and surprised by this recent manipulation of the British Nuclear Test Veterans Court case and is still trying to see how he can best support the British Nuclear Test Veterans. This is not the first odd circumstance that I have witnessed concerning Dr Busby. I suppose your listeners are aware that the UK is on some sort of war footing and has been rebuked for its stance against independent journalism and scientific discourse. In fact, there are many legal cases in the works that prove this to be true. I, myself, was actually targeted by the National Domestic Extremist Intelligence Unit, And Dr Busby was kind enough to offer me sanctuary prior to my relocation to Ireland. While staying with Dr Busby, there was a very odd incident that might describe the situation that independent scientists and reporters are undergoing in the UK. In short, Dr Busby had his bank account hacked, and I was a witness, along with a solicitor and a bank manager, to money just disappearing into thin air. From his account. Obviously, this was some form of harassment by the state, and it's not the only recent situation that scientists have undergone in the UK that I have witnessed. For instance, Dr Ian Fairley had had both his credit cards blocked recently whilst trying to make a payment to the UK-based anti-nuclear organisation Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. And indeed, this is the UK scientist who proved this year, without doubt in peer-reviewed process that there is definitely a link to the nuclear power plants and leukaemia in children. That is the end of my report for this week. I hope to bring you some further details on Dr Busby concerning the British Nuclear Test Veterans case in London. And lastly, I would like to thank you personally, Libby, for giving us UK citizens a voice in such repressive times and for helping to aid free discourse in matters of science-based reporting. This is Sean McGee reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat podcast from Limerick in Ireland. In Japan, aid workers from the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the world's biggest humanitarian organization, gathered recently in Fukushima to gain first-hand knowledge on how people worldwide should prepare for nuclear disasters. They came from 17 different countries. On March 11 of 2011, 
Japanese Red Cross rescue teams rushed to the Tohoku region immediately after the tsunami, but they had to retreat once the nuclear crisis became known because the teams were completely unprepared for a nuclear accident with no tools to measure radiation, no protective gear, and they had to leave the area and its people behind. They're making certain that does not happen again. And finally, it turns out that sweets, cookies, and green tea imported from Japan will be subject to tests for radioactive substances beginning next year, as long as you live in Taiwan, because that's where it's going to be taking place. Of specific concern are green tea drinks imported from Japan into Taiwan, which have surged over the past three years, even though green tea leaves in Japan had tested positive for radioactive substances ever since 2011. Immediately after the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster began, Taiwan imposed a ban on foods from Fukushima, Ibaraki, Tochiji, Gunma, and Chiba prefectures, which remains in effect today. We'll have our featured interview in just a moment, but first, Yes, I Glow in the Dark is my ebook on what it means to find oneself only one mile from a nuclear reactor meltdown while it's happening. Loads of yucks and tons of fun. It takes you from one mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and beyond. The ebook is available on Amazon Kindle, and by purchasing it, you'll not only get yourself a great read, you'll be helping to support the work of this show. This week, we again have the privilege of hearing from Arnie Gunderson, our favorite nuclear engineer. Arnie has 40 years of nuclear power engineering experience, was a licensed reactor operator, holds a nuclear safety patent, and is a former nuclear industry senior vice president. During his nuclear power industry career, Arnie managed and coordinated projects at 70 nuclear power plants in the U.S., he currently heads Fairwinds Energy Education and consults on nuclear power issues around the world. Fortunately, he's come over from the dark side to our side. Last time Arnie was interviewed on Nuclear Hot Seat, the show received just under half a million downloads in just one week. Listen and you'll understand why. Arnie Gunderson, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi, thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. We keep learning more about the devastating events that actually occurred at Fukushima Daiichi starting on March 11, 2011. Just to orient people who may be hearing this information from you for the first time, how would you now summarize the early events that set up this ongoing disaster? Well, there's supposed to be six barriers of protection between the public and the nuclear reactor core. And um, the first barrier is the fuel, the fuel cladding. Then there's the nuclear reactor. And then there's some other things. And the final barrier is the containment building. Well, over about two or three days, from about the 11th to the 14th, every one of those barriers failed. So each of the six barriers failed. The fuel clad caught fire, essentially, and gave off hydrogen that blew up the containment and the reactor melted down. So every single barrier between the, what's inside the nuclear reactor and the general public was proven to be a complete failure in three days. Bring us up to date on what we know of the current status of Units 1, 2, and 3 at Fukushima, all of which went through meltdown. You know... These terms like meltdown, melt-through, China syndrome, those are really not in um, any engineering text. A meltdown is when the nuclear core disintegrates and lays inside the nuclear reactor. That clearly happened at each one of these nuclear, uh, at one, two, and three. Well, the next thing happened as well, and that's a melt-through, which means that there is enough heat in the pile of nuclear fuel at the bottom of the nuclear reactor, enough decay heat from the radioactive rubble that it melted eight inches of solid steel and broke through that. The, uh, the jury's still out about the China syndrome, which is did the core actually melt through the concrete that's below that? But I've been saying now for two years, it really doesn't matter. What happened at Fukushima is 
if the core didn't get into the ground, what's happening is the building is leaking so badly that the groundwater is getting into the core. So either way, you've got nuclear fuel in direct contact with groundwater. And, you know, the net effect of that is that Fukushima has released more radiation to the air and to the ground combined than did Chernobyl. So this is, as far as the total radiation releases go, uh, this is the worst accident the world has ever seen. And, of course, it's not over yet. No, you know, that's really the key. When Back in 2011, I had some friends in Japan, and and I approached them with an idea to uh, prevent nuclear fuel from coming in contact with the groundwater. And my goal was to build a zeolite trench. Zeolite is a material that absorbs radiation around the power plant and then outside of the zeolite trench to pump down the groundwater so no groundwater could get into the nuclear reactors. And my friends in Japan told me, great idea, Arnie, but TEPCO doesn't have the money to do it. Well, it's a pay me now, pay me later. Now Tokyo Electric is pouring radiation into the groundwater, and the cost to clean that up far exceeds what they could have spent back three years ago. So they were penny-wise and pound-foolish. And this from a company that, in the first half of fiscal 2015, posted profits of $2.23 billion. You know, that's an illusory profit, but you're right. They are showing a profit again, despite the fact that eight or nine of their nukes and 54 nuclear plants in all of Japan are shut down. You know, what's happening here is that the regulators have allowed the Japanese people to get soaked for more payments so that they can bail out Tokyo Electric. There was an email that surfaced about a month after the accident. And it was from the head of METI, M-E-T-I, which is the cabinet-level group within Japan that regulates industry. And they had the responsibility for nuclear. And the head of METI said, this is a month after the accident now, our top priority is to make sure TEPCO survives. You know, damned about the people in Japan, their top priority was to save TEPCO. And that's been the mentality in Japan ever since. We see studies that are being squelched by the Japanese about health effects. On the other hand, if TEPCO needs money, they get a rate increase and show a profit. It's it's terribly disconcerting to me that the Japanese are not rising up even more than they already are and are allowing the Abe administration to get away with this. Let's go back to a little bit of the technical information, and then we'll move much more into health and other aspects of this. TEPCO has been removing the fuel rods from spent fuel pool of top Unit 4. And just this past week, they announced that they have completed the process. I can remember when they started, we had great trepidations about their ability to do so without dropping them, breaking them, or releasing huge amounts of radiation in the environment. How well or how much does that get us out of the woods, at least as regards Unit 4? And what other dangers are there out there that TEPCO might be sticking their foot into next? Yeah, the uh, you know, we'll never know how much trouble they had pulling the nuclear fuel. I suspect, you know, having built nuclear fuel rods and racks, rather, that it's extraordinarily difficult to pull some of those rods out. And um, likely they had to exert forces beyond which they had they had planned to pull some of these rods out. But all of that was done under the veil of secrecy. So we'll we'll never know how difficult it was. After about two years, the chance of a fuel pool fire drops dramatically. And after about three years, the, the chance of a fuel pool fire is just about uh, impossible to happen. So what uh, Tokyo Electric is now saying is that that we've removed removed the fuel, therefore there's no chance of a fuel pool fire. In fact, there was no chance anyway. Now, had there been a seismic event and the pool drained because the bottom cracked, and we know the the bottom of this 
was shored up. They put in extensive bracing in the bottom of the nuclear fuel pool in June of 2011, essentially while the accident is still happening, to prevent the bottom from failing any more than apparently it already had. So I think what's happening here is that Tokyo Electric is going to completely dismantle Unit 4, and that will give people the false impression that things are under control and 1, 2, and 3 will happen in due, in due course. The problem is Unit 4 is the easy one. Unit 4 is a 1,000 times easier than Units 1, 2, and 3. But it wouldn't surprise me that Tokyo Electric essentially turns it into a parking lot, you know, completely dismantles that building. So psychologically, the Japanese begin to think they're making progress on Fukushima. In fact, they're not making any progress. They're just wasting a lot of money. But I think for show, the Abe administration and Tokyo Electric will want to completely uh, dismantle uh, decommission uh, Unit 4. You know, I went through a rip and a tear on last week's show about the use of the word decommission in connection with Fukushima because the literal meaning of the word is to take apart something that is intact and operating as opposed to what they have over there, which is closer to mitigating a disaster and something that is already destroyed. I think that's a great analogy. I'll use it in the future. You know, we'll have to come up with a word that combines disaster and decommissioning, maybe decommastering or something. I don't know. <laughs> but there's got to that you, you're right though. The, the decommissioning is an orderly process when something has been operating and it ran to the end of its useful life. But, um, yeah, you're right. We have a disaster on our hands and, dismantling of a disaster really shouldn't be called uh, decommissioning. So I agree with you. Well, I'll work on getting you a word for that. Moving on to uh, more of TEPCO's shenanigans. Last week, they tore a hole in the cover of Unit 1. To use the nuclear industry's favorite word, how significant was that? You know, I don't know why they did it. I, I've been struggling with why they would want to take apart the cover that they already had. The cover was there to prevent gases from going airborne. And now that they've removed the cover, gases are going airborne again. Now they'll say, well, it's not much gas. And in comparison to blowing the thing to smithereens three years ago, they're right. But in comparison to every operating reactor in the U.S., the releases through that torn cover now are extraordinary. And I don't know why they did it unless they want to, maybe they were having difficulty getting human beings in, so they want to get the air out faster so they can get more human beings in. I really can't figure out what the logic was. Can, can we go back a minute on the, on the water that's being released, though? Are you okay with that? Uh, that was actually my next question. Oh, cool. Okay. You know, <laughs> you know when, when Fukushima was built, they cut the mountain down. There, there was a, the hillside was 35 meters, about 110 feet high that ran out to the ocean. And then, you know, General Electric and Ibasco, two American contractors, made the decision to cut the hillside down so it was only 30 feet high. Well, in the process, that allowed all the groundwater to change its route and for 40 years, these nuclear plants have been pumping out water from their basement every day. So, you know, we, we talk about this 400 tons of water a day. Well, how did they measure that? The answer is they've known for 40 years that they're pumping out groundwater to the tune of 400 tons a day. That's the way it always worked. So that actually predates the accident happening on March 11 of 2011? The leakage of regular groundwater into the regular basements predated the accident, right. But now the, the difference is that now that we have the nuclear core essentially on the floor of the building and the pumps don't work because of the, the accident, they can't pump the groundwater out like they used to. So the inflow of non-radioactive groundwater had been going on for 40 years and they would just pump it out and keep going. But this, the, the new fly in the ointment, if you will, is that the 
radiation is now present in the water. I always wondered how they knew so precisely the 400 tons a day. And the reason is because they've been doing it for 40 years. About a month ago, a little over a month ago, two major typhoons hit Japan. This was in early to mid-October. And as a result, there was an enormous jump in radioactivity in the water in testing wells next to, I believe it was Fukushima Unit 2. There were measurements of over 400,000 becquerels per kilogram of cesium, which even TEPCO admits is 800 to 900 times the previous peak radiation readings. What does that tell you about what's going on there? Well, it tells me that contamination is everywhere. You know, what happened was these uh, both typhoons brought something on the order of 6 to 10 inches of rain in a, in a one-day period. So all of the contamination on that site got washed into the upper surfaces of the ground and got picked up in this well. You, you know, when we see that particular well or, or any of these particular wells, we make the mistake to think that that's the worst it is, and that's really not true. You can be sure that there are other locations in the groundwater on site that are even worse than those wells are reading. We had the same problem here at Vermont Yankee to a much lesser degree when we had a, a leak into the groundwater. The well that the radiation was detected at wasn't at the worst place, so it would be incredibly lucky if TEPCO have been able to drill a hole exactly where the worst place is. I don't think they really know what the worst value really is. How serious is this radiation leak into the water to the present and future condition of the Pacific Ocean? You know, it's going to bleed for decades, if not centuries. You know, TEPCO is now saying that maybe they'll have, uh, they'll, they'll get to the core at Unit 1, which is the easiest one, in 2025. So now for the next 10 years, groundwater is going to be touching that nuclear core and bleeding into the earth. Well, when it's in the earth, the pressure gradient is from the land into the ocean. So as it builds up into the earth, it's also leaking out into the Pacific at a slower rate than it's leaking out of the buildings. So what we're going to see is even when these cores are removed, and that can be 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, there'll still be a huge residual amount of radiation in the soil and in the groundwater so that the site will continue to bleed into the Pacific for a century or more. Let's switch over to the problems that are being faced in Fukushima by the children. There's been a tremendous impact on their health with thyroid nodules and diagnosed cancers showing up in ever-increasing numbers. Yet at the same time, there has been tremendous pressure, which you alluded to earlier, placed on doctors in Japan to not report the truth of what is happening. I know that you're in touch with many medical professionals in that country. What are they telling you? We have firsthand knowledge from at least half a dozen Japanese doctors whose names I will not reveal, who have said that they have been threatened with loss of their hospital privileges if they uh, speak frankly to their patients about the health effects that they're experiencing or if they you know, frankly speak in, in public about their fears and, in fact, measurements of how bad the uh, radioactive illnesses really are. So we know of at least a half a dozen doctors who are being sat on, and if six are, you can be certain that many more are as well. You know, it, it's a pressure that's being applied up and down the spectrum. A major Japanese newspaper, Asahi Shinbun, just published a story saying, you know, there are no birth defects, so therefore everybody should come back to their homes. It's safe. And frankly, that's absurd. You wouldn't expect to have birth defects in the first generation. Those birth defect issues occur in the second and especially the third and fourth generations. What you'll see is exactly what we're seeing, which is you know, early uh, thyroid cancers and thyroid nodules. And then over the next 15 or 20 years, increased organ cancers as well as, you know, muscular cancers. So for Asahi Shinbun, a major paper to basically call people to go back home 
based on the absurd assumption that birth defects are what could be expected in this first generation is absolutely absurd. The number they're not giving us is how many stillbirths and how many miscarriages there's been in relation to the rest of Japan. And those are radiation-induced. You know, you'll get a stillbirth or you'll get a miscarriage when a fetus is deformed or when it already is developing cancer. Your body will just do that. And the Japanese are not reporting stillbirths and miscarriages in Fukushima Prefecture. That's a much better indication. But the, again, the uh, nuclear industry hides behind the fact that, you know, there's no dead bodies in the street. But of course there'd be no dead bodies in the street. The fact of the matter is we're going to see cancers out in that four to 30 year time span. And I still stand by what I've been saying now for three years. I think there'll be a million extra cancers as a result of Fukushima Daiichi. All of this speaks to an enormous political cover-up of the nature and the impact of the accident. In your opinion, what in the world is behind this kind of thinking? Money. The Japanese banks are subsidizing you know, 50 nuclear power plants that have been shut down for three years, and they want their money back. So what, what we're seeing is enormous pressure on the Diet, which is their parliament, their House of Representatives, if you will. So the, the banks are applying enormous pressure to the Abe administration and to the Diet to get their money back. And the only way they're going to get their money back is if they start these nuclear plants back up. So these decisions aren't really being made with the health and safety of the Japanese in mind. These decisions are being made with the bottom line of the, the huge banks in Japan, you know, Mitsubishi Bank. And each one of these banks has a major financial stake in getting nuclear started back up in Japan. In 2012, when you were in Japan early in the year, you collected random dirt samples in Tokyo from public parks, playgrounds, a rooftop garden, and later testing showed that all of them would be considered nuclear waste if found in the United States. Have you updated this sampling process? Well, I um, I had those samples uh, and sent them back to the lab for more analysis because several of them didn't only have cesium in them, but several of them had uranium and other isotopes in them to indicate that uh, you know, severe core damage. That package was, quote, lost in the mail and never made it to the lab. Oh. So, so I don't know, uh, and I put tracers on it, and the post office isn't telling me where they went. So we've lost the samples into the, uh, uh, into the postal system. It's, it's gone forever, as far as I can tell. Of course, Tokyo is the planned site of the 2020 Summer Olympic Games. Having taken these samples and knowing what you do, in your opinion, how safe is it for the world's elite athletes to expose themselves to this kind of environment? It, it makes me uncomfortable to answer that question, and I get it a lot, but I, I will answer it. But, you know, if we're worried about elite athletes spending two weeks in Japan six years from now, what about the poor people in Tokyo who have lived there for nine years without being able to get away? My heart goes out to the elite athletes, but they don't have to come. There's 35 million people in the Tokyo metropolitan area that really have no choice but to stay there. So, you know, my heart goes out to the 35 million people who can't hop a plane and go back to their native country. Their homes are contaminated. We had cases where we had two women, uh, they were sisters, both pregnant at the same time, one with twins, one with a single baby. Two of the kids were, were stillbirths, and the other was born with a deformity. They all had the metallic taste in their mouth as the, as the babies were uh, in utero. And they lived in Tokyo, 130 miles from the accident. These are people. They're not statistics, and they're not elite athletes. And they've got no place to run. So my, well, my heart goes out to the Olympic athletes, and, and there is a risk for them. The risk is, is hundreds of times greater for the, the poor Japanese who have no place to go. I've asked you this question before. 
most famously on Nuclear Hot Seat number 117, which ended up receiving almost half a million downloads in a week. But here's this question again. If tomorrow you were placed in charge at Fukushima Daiichi, what would you do? I would fire Tokyo Electric in a heartbeat. And I would bring in a, uh, an international consortium to replace them. We are in unchartered territory here from an engineering standpoint. And, you know, I used to do decommissioning, and and, uh, I wrote the small bore piping section of the world's first decommissioning handbook. This isn't in any handbook. The problems they're facing are not in any handbook. Tokyo Electric is an operating company, and one would question how well they really did operate their nukes, but that's what their expertise was in. Their expertise is not in engineering. And their expertise certainly is not in cutting-edge engineering. So I would bring in an international consortium. But I'd also tie that into a, uh, a more transparent public oversight process. You know, right now we've got this backdoor communication between Tokyo, the banks, and the Diet, their parliament. It, the people are being shut out. The normal folk are being shut out. So I think the horse is already out of the barn here. There's no way to make this problem go away quickly. But I'm afraid with Tokyo Electric in charge and without any transparent oversight, the problem is becoming much longer than it really needs to be. I understand that you have some traveling coming up. Where are you going to be going, and does that possibly include Japan? Uh, Next week I'll be in Washington, D.C. on three different issues one of which relates to the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant out in California, which is a seismic risk as bad, if not worse, than what we're experiencing in Japan. There'll be some Nuclear Regulatory Commission discussions about the problems at Diablo Canyon, as well as a couple other things in the D.C. area for a week. It's likely I'll be going to Japan, although the exact date of that is still in question. When you do go to Japan, this is an area of personal concern. What do you do to protect yourself from the radiation in the environment? Well, I wash my hands frequently, and I make sure I don't put my hands in my mouth without them being washed. You know, the Japanese are are lucky in that they, they do have the hygienic habit of taking their shoes off, which leaving your shoes in one area of a dwelling and and having uh, another area where you're not tracking the dirt in is important. And then the, the other thing I do is I source my food. I won't eat anything that's grown north of Tokyo. Anything in the southern provinces of Japan, I will eat. But anything in the northern provinces, I stay away from. If I were a Japanese, there's two more things I would do. Um, three, actually. I would make sure that my kids had the same habits you know, we've, we've shown that radioactive shoe, and these kids are playing. And one of the samples I got from Tokyo was from a kid's playground. So radiation's everywhere. It's on their shoes. It's in their mouths and stuff like that. So hygiene for my children, I would definitely have it be important. But the other thing is frequently vacuuming and frequently disposing of those vacuum cleaner bags is, a, is critical to successful living in the, in the Tokyo area. You know, we got a bag from Nagoya, which is even further away from Fukushima Daiichi than is Tokyo. And that bag had some small amounts of cesium, but it had one incredibly hot particle. And that hot particle was essentially a speck of nuclear fuel. This speck was smaller than the period at the end of a sentence, much smaller. It was invisible. And yet it was giving off... 200 disintegrations every second. Um, Essentially, a piece of nuclear fuel had wafted 300 kilometers or 200 miles from the accident and wound up in somebody's vacuum cleaner bag. And if it's in your vacuum cleaner bag, it's in your lungs. And, you know, that was one of the first things that happened after Three Mile Island and Chernobyl was an increase in lung cancer. That happens in about the 10-year time span. So I would expect that as a result of these hot particles that have blown all over Japan and Seattle and Vancouver and Portland in the United States, uh, I would expect an increase in lung cancer as a result of the accident. Where do you see this going, Arnie? 
Japan had 54 nuclear power plants before the tsunami hit, and um, four were immediately turned to rubble, Fukushima 1, 2, 3, 4. So they were down at 50. The Japanese have already said they're not going to start up Fukushima 5 and 6, so now you're at 48. There's another 10 or 20 in Japan that are so old and the costs to modify them are so great that likely they will never start up again either. So in Japan, we've gone from 54 nuclear plants to none that are operating. But of those, probably 20 to 25 will start back up because of pressure from the banks. But think about that. Japan had 54 nuclear plants, and in the blink of an eye, they had none and they still continue to go on as a functioning society. So America's got 100 nuclear plants, and if there is an accident, likely the public pressure would be the same and would shut down 100 nuclear plants. That's not a stable electric grid to me. That's, that's a very risky analysis. I said this in the book I wrote, which was called Fukushima Daiichi, The Truth, which talked about the accident, and the way forward, which presented an alternative. And the, the future is coming whether the Japanese like it or not, or whether the Americans like it or not. And it's a distributed electric grid. This concept of baseload power plants, these big, huge nuclear plants scattered with large transmission lines, that was something we did in the 20th century. And we're in that 21st century now, and times are different. You know, when I went to school, I built baseload power plants, and I used large central processing computers, IBM 360s, and I called my wife on a landline. She was my girlfriend then. And, you know, things have changed. We no longer have mainframe computers that people go to. We've distributed our computing. Things have changed with the phone system. You know, we've distributed our phone use through cell phones. Well, the last domino to fall is this concept that we can't do without central station power. I think a 100 years from now, people will look back and they'll see this debate not as a pro-nuke, anti-nuke debate. I think they'll see that the world's changing and the paradigm of central station power is dying. It's like having a dinosaur in a, in a flower garden. It doesn't work anymore. So what we're seeing is a paradigm shift from the central station power systems that we needed in the 20th century, because we didn't have the computing horsepower, to a distributed generation system that by you know, the next 50 years or so, we will look back on this not as a battle about pro-nuke, anti-nuke, but what's happening is the future is distributed energy. What can we the listening audience and those of us who care so much about this issue, do to help support your work? There's two things the listening audience can do, and it's the end of the year, and Fairwinds does have a, a fun drive. So I would appreciate if people would, one, watch our videos, and we've got some really cool ones coming up, and then click on, on the PayPal link and donate whatever you can. But the second thing is if people are concerned about nuclear power, they should put solar on the roof, and here's why. Nuclear power doesn't make any money in the evenings and in the middle of the night. Nuclear power makes its money from about noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's when the peak load is highest. Well, if you put a solar collector on your house, that's exactly when the peak load is highest. So you take away the peak load. And if you do that, you're personally taking away revenue from the utility. Uh, or from the nuclear power plant. So we can put nuclear power plants out of business if we take away the peak load business that's so lucrative to them. So put a solar collector on your house and, and know that you've gone a long way toward eliminating the need for nuclear power. What a terrific idea. I hadn't heard that one before. Well, thank you very much for having me. I, I, I hope that your your readers take the advice. And thank you so much for being on Nuclear Hot Seat. We're going to go after half a million again this time, Arnie. That was Arnie Gunderson. More on Arnie's work can be found at fairwinds.com. That's fairwinds with an E dot com. They have videos, audios, podcasts archived, all of it cutting-edge information explaining the nuclear issue in clear, concise, non-apocalyptic language. 
well worth the time. That was the wind-up, and here's the pitch. Nuclear Hot Seat relies on your donations, yes, yours, to meet the bills and stay available. You can make a single donation equivalent to a cup of Starbucks. You can add the price of a nosh if you feel like splurging on us. Sign up for small recurring monthly payments or put us in your year-end gift-giving list. If you find that Nuclear Hot Seat makes you think, laugh, helps you understand the nuclear issues, and not be so alone with your awareness, help us keep doing it. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down on the homepage, and click on the big red Donate button. Whatever you can do to help. Thank you. Activist shout-outs. Thanks this week to Sean McGee, otherwise known online as Sean Arclight, for becoming Nuclear Hot Seat's UK correspondent. We'll be hearing more from Sean in the coming weeks. And here's a heads up. Reserve the date, Friday, November 14, at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. That's when Kimberly Roberson and I will be interviewed for a full hour on Project Censored on KPFA in Berkeley, California. Kim, for those of you who aren't familiar with her, is the founder of Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, which deals with food issues, and she's also the author of Silence Deafening, Fukushima Fallout, A Mother's Response. She's also a former Greenpeace nuclear campaigner, and we think the two of us make a pretty terrific team. The Project Censored program will be syndicated during the following week to Pacifica and other progressive radio stations in New York, Boston, D.C., Nashville, Washington State, Oregon, and elsewhere, so it's a big deal. We will be discussing food contamination issues, how to help maintain the best possible health in an increasingly radioactive world, and a new Information is Power audio program Kim and I have developed to help people learn how to best safeguard their health in a fukushima world. So listen live, if you can, to Project Censored on Friday, November 14, at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on KPFA Berkeley, or you can listen over the Internet live, or you can catch a replay. And when we have a link, it will be posted on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com. John Stewart, wider than... No. John, you need a nuclear pundit. That would be me. Such numbnutsical stories are coming out of the nuclear industry. More every week, and they all deserve to be on your show. Be great to have a regular segment, but I see your format. I understand it. So we will take what we can get. At least to start. So gib ha kuk, booby. Listen to the show and realize, I don't have to be on air. Just let me write or steer the writing of your staff on this one subject area. I promise you won't regret it. Here's today's final thought. The late Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work defined the five stages of grief as denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now, this has become a bit of a cliché, especially after Bob Fosse used it as a comic through-line in his magnum opus, All That Jazz. I've often thought that people learning about the nuclear issue have their own stages of grief to go through that parallel what Kubler-Ross wrote about. I know that when Fukushima first happened, I had less than a nano of denial because I'd been at Three Mile Island and I recognized what was happening. Then I zipped through the rest of the emotions until I hit acceptance, which is when I felt mute with despair. It took the founding of this podcast and its weekly demands before I moved out of that nuclear-induced helplessness and discovered that I did have the heart to face the demon of nuclear every week. Many people I meet, when I start to speak of the work I'm doing, they cringe, they express their discomfort, or just move away to grab onto the closest substance with which they can stuff their feelings. They bounce off the nuclear issue, saying that they have other things to worry about and can't add this one to their list. That's the first stage of grief, denial. Perhaps they avoid feeling the rest of the stages because they can't bear to think that they will get to the point where they will have to accept this mess of what's happening and that they won't be able to do anything about it. But that's not the truth. 
the truth is that there's a lot that can be done by any and all of us. I've come to realize that the key to moving forward is to understand that there is a sixth stage of grief, and that is taking action. Having gone through negative emotions, wallowed in the basement of our feelings, and finally come to the acceptance of the fact that all these feelings exist, that nuclear exists, and that it sucks, at that point, one can either stay stuck in the despair or fight back. I choose to fight back by producing nuclear hot seat. So if any of what you've heard on this show or read online or just learned through your life about nuclear upsets you, let yourself have the emotions. Deny, rage, negotiate with your higher power of choice, feel the depression, accept that this is the truth of life on Earth from now on, that nuclear has really messed things up, and then take all that emotional energy and do something with it. Select one of those things, just one that makes you angry, and find a way to get active on it. Sign a petition. Google anti-nuclear and visit one of the sites that comes up. Read an article or a book. Write a letter to the editor. Call a congressperson or senator. Book a speaker at your church or synagogue or neighborhood group. Learn what you can do to protect your health. There are many ways to resist and fight back against the grief-inducing nuclear military-industrial complex. Just find one you feel willing to do something about and then do it. Even if it's just making the agreement with yourself to listen to next week's nuclear hot seat. And maybe the one after that. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 11, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds Energy Education, New York State Department of Health and Environmental Health Sciences, Solar IMG, New York Times, UC San Francisco, Los Angeles CBS Local.com, Statesman Journal, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, United Steelworkers, Huntington News.net, American Chemical Society, the Food and Drug Administration, FuguLeaks.org, NHK, TEPCO, Kyoto, WMNF, Fukushima Diary, and our friend Iori Mochizuki, Joseph Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project, Canada's Department of Fisheries and Oceans, TheEcologist.com, FocusTaiwan.tw, the ever-clueless PR hacks and flacks at World Nuclear News, and my friends within the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, which you are cordially invited to join. Special thanks this week to Joyce Mason, for her supportive companionship as the only person who has ever witnessed an entire nuclear hot seat production day. Some house guests are better than others. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV and is also available on airprogressive.com. Our archive is available on iTunes. You can subscribe under podcasts. You can also find us on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, where we've got everything archived. And our YouTube channel carries our podcast, courtesy the unflagging support of Joni Ray. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2014, Libby Halady and Hardistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as you are a not-for-profit group, blog, website, or, heck, just an individual. You've got my permission to reuse what's on this podcast as long as proper attribution of the website and the name of the program is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. 
It's the bomb. <laughs> 